Open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians 5. And verse 22. We have the joy of beginning a series this evening on the Holy Spirit. More specifically, on the fruit of the Spirit. I hope that you will see this evening the overwhelming importance of this topic, of these verses, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. It is my plan to take 11 messages to explain this sentence of the Bible. And I think that you will come to the end if you are able to attend each of them saying that you have a better understanding of one of the most difficult doctrines of the Bible. A doctrine that is so difficult it is more difficult than the doctrine of election. A doctrine that is so difficult that I have heard John MacArthur say he doesn't even understand this doctrine. And what he means by that is completely. A doctrine that is so difficult that I have on my shelf good men from the past writing books against each other on these two verses, this one sentence, and even men today. Let's study, by God's grace and with the help of His Spirit, the doctrine of the fruit of the Spirit. Tonight's message is an introduction, and the title is The Vital essential, necessary fruit of the Spirit. Let's read these two verses, one sentence. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there is no law. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit presents us with two difficulties and dangers. One difficulty is to neglect the subject of the Holy Spirit. That might be typified in, for example, an excellent book by Robert Raymond. He's a Presbyterian theologian and a brilliant man who wrote a 1,200-page systematic theology. A systematic theology breaks up the doctrines of the Bible and usually spends 80 to 100 pages per doctrine. 
the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of God the Father, the doctrine of God the Son, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of angels and demons, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the future times, the end times. Most systematic theologies do that and spend about 80 to 100 pages on those nine doctrines and get a thousand page book. This man wrote a 1200 page book and he has no section on the Holy Spirit. Wait, that's, that's, that was an accident. I'm sure it just, it, it was, it, it's in the revision, right? There is a section, but it's not a chapter. It's a subsection of another doctrine where he spends nine pages. There's 1,200 pages in a brilliant book. He could respond by saying, what should I cut out? And I agree, it's all good. But I think that's a good example where some good and godly men don't tend to talk much about this vital and wonderful doctrine, the Holy Spirit. And you can guess the opposite error. Discussing the Holy Spirit more than you do Christ, the cross, sanctification. Spending so much emphasis on the Holy Spirit that you begin to falsely attribute phenomena to the Holy Spirit that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. Let me cite as a case in point the Toronto blessing, where only one of those words was the truth. Back in the late 90s, in Toronto, Canada, a pastor began a series of evening services, and they pretended that the Holy Spirit came on them and extended the meetings Because they saw phenomena where people were falling on the ground and shaking. And then people were speaking with tongues. And when he says speaking with tongues, what he means is they were speaking ecstatic sounds. By ecstatic sounds, please pardon me. But not everyone's first language is English, so... Let me give you an example. Just Google it. You can find videos of people doing that. Or just go to churches all around you. You can hear that. You can also hear that in my house with some of the young ones. Those are two dangers to fall into with the Holy Spirit, either neglecting or so emphasizing the Holy Spirit that you begin to attribute to Him things that have nothing to do with Him. The Toronto blessing went on so far that they had to continue to push the envelope so that when people had fallen and had shaken, now that's not exciting after two weeks. It never is with show business. You always have to come up with something new and better. 
Which is why when they make a sequel of a movie, it has to do something more extreme than the last movie. And so the Toronto Blessing went further from shaking, and they began this idea of being drunk with the Holy Spirit. And a South African man, Rodney Howard Brown, I'm glad South Africa finally exported some evil. It's always America that's sending out the bad things. Someone from South Africa went to the Toronto Blessing and passed on this idea that you can be drunk in the Holy Spirit, stagger around, and impersonate barnyard animals. That's not a joke. You can find it on YouTube. Go search Toronto Blessing animals. You will see, for example, a pastor, a man professing to be a pastor, crawling on all fours with a woman who put a leash on his neck. Another woman who says, finally, I wanted the Holy Spirit so badly that I decided to be a wolf. And she starts howling into the microphone. Do you laugh at this or do you cry? What do you do with this bizarre activity? Which error is more dangerous? These are some of the terrible errors that can come into the world. Because people don't focus on these two verses. What would the world be like if these verses were a reality? There's nine of these fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Imagine if the whole world were like that. There would be no police, no courts, and no prisons because there would be no crime. There would be no poverty, joblessness, or inflation because there would be no laziness or greed. There would be no divorce, wife beating, or family tensions. Instead, there would be more laughter in the home. Mothers, isn't that what you want in your home? Why isn't that there? Because of those two verses, the neglect of these two verses. There would be more family memories, happy memories. I dare say there would even be larger families. In fact, it would sound like heaven if you could have a society with people who had those marks. Heaven would be created on earth if we had people with these marks. Let me go a step further and say in the Old Testament... When God began to reveal his will to men, he gave the Ten Commandments. Those were enforced from the outside. If you broke the Ten Commandments, you would be stoned. Even animals who got too near to Mount Sinai had to be killed. But in the New Testament, we have something far better Jeremiah 31, one of our creeds that we read, says the law of God is written on our hearts. And in the New Testament, we have the, the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you're thinking, are you putting too much emphasis on two verses, one sentence, at the end of one of Paul's first letters? Maybe I would be if it wasn't repeated by Jesus Christ 
the first time he preached, the first thing he said in the first sermon he preached, in what we call the Beatitudes. Maybe I would be putting too much emphasis on it if it were not found in the negative by the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Maybe I would be putting too much emphasis if it weren't found in 2 Peter. Peter the Apostle wrote about this. Maybe I would be putting too much emphasis if these same kinds of themes in different wording were found in the book of 1 John. Maybe I would be putting too much emphasis if these same exact virtues were not found prophesied in the book of Psalms for those people who live under the new covenant. Perhaps I would be putting too much emphasis if when I say we're going to take 11 sermons on two verses and someone smiles as if, wow, we're going to spend so much time. In reality, I'm going to preach the entire New Testament in 11 sermons because these two verses summarize, and now you're going to find out, that most difficult doctrine, sanctification. These two verses are going to summarize your journey from the time you came in the narrow gate until the time you get to heaven. Luke 13, 24, strive to enter at the narrow gate because many, I tell you, will try to get in and they can't get in. But some of you are in. Most of you have entered. You say, I'm not perfect, but I know that God has changed me then the rest of your life is going to unfold in this one sentence, these nine words. And in that sense, much of the epistles are these nine words. So I could say, we're going to spend 11 sermons on this verse, or I could say, we're going to summarize the entire New Testament in 11 sermons. Which one makes you feel better? You can take either one. With that as an introduction, let me give you the first point, the introduction to this glorious doctrine. Here it is in one sentence. The Holy Spirit never, not one time, merely saved a man without also producing these fruits. The Holy Spirit has never done His glorious, miraculous work of regeneration, the creation of a new man inside your soul, without also beginning a work that He will continue of producing fruit. It's never happened. That's the basis. Let's understand this tonight. I have 11 points of my sermon. While I was preparing, I marked out several of them if I go too long. So I'm going to begin with the seven most important. And if time allows, I'll go to the two next most important Let's see what we can do. First of all, let's understand the word spirit in verse 22. But the fruit of the 
Spirit. Who is this Spirit? In four places, the New Testament emphasizes the Holy Spirit. Four places, just four. So for those people who place a great emphasis on the Holy Spirit, they need to remember there's only how many passages that use the Holy Spirit or or speak about the Holy Spirit at length. Only four. Here they are. You can have all four of them right here. John 14 to 16. John 14, 15, and 16. The night before our Lord dies, he mentions the Holy Spirit eight times with a name or a title. Many more times if you count pronouns like he. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is always referred to with the personal pronoun he. Never with it. That's important because the Jehovah's Witnesses translate it, it, it. Instead of he, because they they deny that there is a personal spirit. John 14 through 16. The spirit of God is introduced as our comforter, teacher, and personal agent of conviction. I've put those in the catechism, and they're in many catechisms. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. Comfort is a Latin word. Come means with. Forte means strength. With strength. The comforter is not someone who comes out and and rubs you when you fell. The comforter is not your mother who when you hurt your knee, she holds you and says, sorry, 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 sorry. The comforter is someone who gives you ammunition to go fight in a war. How do I know that's true? Because of the context of John 14, but also because of what happens two months later. What happens two months after John 14, 15, and 16? Acts chapter 2. When Peter stands up at Pentecost and preaches. And then Acts chapter 3, when they throw him in prison. And what does he do as soon as he gets out of prison? He goes back and preaches again, even though they told him, don't preach. That sounds like with strength. It does not sound like a nine-year-old who cries to mommy, and mommy says, it's okay, you just sit down here and have a cookie. We need to recover the biblical doctrine of the comforter. He's a convictor. He's a teacher. That's the first passage, John 14, 15, and 16. Eight times you find the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 is the next time. Romans chapter 8. You find the Holy Spirit 17 times in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is doing one great work. He's causing us to persevere. So do you understand that? If you've come in through the narrow gate... The Holy Spirit is the reason you haven't quit yet. Have you thanked him? That's Romans chapter 8. The third passage is 1 Corinthians 12. He's mentioned 11 times. And it says here that the Spirit gives gifts to men. 
in 1 Corinthians 12. Of the four passages that mention the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 is the only one that mentions speaking in tongues or miracles. And just as a very brief comment, why would you want that passage to govern your understanding of the Holy Spirit? When in 1 Corinthians 12, speaking in tongues is the lowest gift given to the worst church. The fourth passage that mentions the Holy Spirit is Galatians 5, where we're at tonight. Eight times the Holy Spirit is referenced in this chapter. And in this chapter, the Holy Spirit changes our lives. You can see a theme if you look through those four passages. First of all, our Lord speaks about the Holy Spirit one time at length. He speaks of it other times, but one time at length. And then it's the Apostle Paul. Three times, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. He speaks about the Holy Spirit. These chapters represent the most concentrated discussion of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. If you want to study and understand the Holy Spirit, do not run off to the book of Acts and say, speaking in tongues. Run to the places that Reference the Holy Spirit the most with the clearest context in the most explanation. Now, within this list of four passages, John 14 to 16, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 12, and Galatians 5, within this list, Galatians is unique because of this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let me just say to you that the list is incomplete. How many are listed in here in verse 22 and 23? There's nine of them. But it's not a complete list. Do not think (coughs) that these are the only fruit or fruits of the Spirit. They come easily in groups of three. Love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, and goodness. Self-control faithfulness, and gentleness. But there are other fruits not listed in this passage that are listed elsewhere. I know that for three reasons. Because if you look in chapter 5, verse 21, he's listing listing the works of the flesh. And in verse 21 he says, and things like this... This is 17 lists of sinful activities. Well, depending on which text you use, there's differences in the Greek texts. There's a number of works of the flesh listed, and then he closes with, oh, and all the other things like this. This and anything that looks like that. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, put it in the list. The same thing is true in the very next verse. Love, joy, peace. If you can find another gracious virtue, it goes in the list. We know that from that 
phrase. We know it because there are other lists in the New Testament. For example, I've already mentioned to you the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Humility is not in the list. So it's not a complete list. Pure in heart is not in the list. Boldness is not in the list. This list is an important list, but it is incomplete. It's complete for what Paul is doing with it, but it is not complete to list all of the virtues in the Bible. It's just long enough to show us that they are all related because if you are really filled with love from the Holy Spirit consistently, you will be bold as a lion. You will also be gentle. You'll also be self-controlled. There's a connection like a spider's web because the same spirit authors all of the fruit. And that leads us to another point. Third, if you're counting, all the fruits are interrelated. You can never truly be a joyful person without being self-controlled. You can't really be good without being patient. The benefit of these nine is that they each have a different emphasis, a different perspective. While there is only one way to God, there are many beauties of his person. And if you will focus on just one of them, you will find that you are gaining all of them. If you strive to be a good husband, you'll find that you're becoming a good Christian. If you really labor at being a godly father, you'll find that you're better to people at work. If you are a true citizen, as Aristotle spent so much time laboring to make men good citizens, if you really are a good citizen, you will find that you are obeying almost all of the commands of God. Because in some historically complex way, Aristotle was mirroring and mimicking the glory of the Old Testament law, which is why he's read even today. Uh, Let me make a comment about the word fruit before someone jumps on me. The word fruit is singular, the fruit of the Spirit. Some people have made great importance out of this. They've said the fruit of the Spirit is singular because if you have one, you'll have all of them. That might be true. I don't know. D.A. Carson, in his book Exegetical Fallacies, warns people about making too much out of details that maybe weren't put in there so that you could make a whole sermon out of that detail. I'm not sure. So I'm not going to spend. So if I say fruits or fruit, don't say, ha ha, he missed it. Show me that there's real evidence that it's very important to say there's only one fruit. Maybe there is, but I haven't seen the evidence that it, that it matters very much. So, But I will say this. Who buys one banana? Who buys one narchi? You buy them in a bag, don't you? You buy in a bunch. And the Holy Spirit, when he begins to change us, even though our personalities will tend to lean toward one emphasis over the other, when he begins to change us, we end up seeing that there's change in many areas at the same time. 
our personality, our upbringing, our personal choices, even our pastor's temperament, and many other factors, our time at history, the country in which you were born into, all of these will influence the harvest and degree of each of these fruits because there's an interrelation not only amongst themselves, amongst all these virtues, but amongst the personality and the work and the timing as we live our lives. Notice this, that the fruit of the Spirit is contrasted with the works of the flesh. Look in verse number 17. The flesh lusts against the Spirit. So there's two there, flesh and Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. How many do we have in verse 17? Two. Verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Their law goes, follows, parallels flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh. Look down at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. Compare those two and what you'll see is in the first one, the works of the flesh strongly emphasizes the man. He's the one doing these works. But who's the one doing the gracious works in verse 22? The Spirit. This raises the great difficulty. Who does these? Why would I preach a series to you on something that you don't do? You don't have to be loving, God will do it in you. It's His fruit. He produces it. Well, I'm not saying that, but some have. And they'll bring it up with that parallel. They'll say, in verse 19, the works of the flesh. You see, it's me doing those sins. But the fruit of the Spirit, you see, it's God doing those. My answer is, that's true. And then he presses me further and says, well then, I can't do anything to be loving or peaceful or gentle or patient. I just have to wait for God. And my answer is no. That's not it. And someone says explain it. That was exactly where John MacArthur said. I can't even explain the doctrine of sanctification. And he was referring to that exact point. I know that I am born again because God did it when I was dead. That I've got. But now when I come to this area of How exactly do I understand the interplay between the works of the flesh, which I am doing by myself, and the fruit of the Spirit, which He is doing, but I'm also involved? My answer is, we'll talk about it in heaven. We can talk and have great uh, great times discussing and looking, but I can't find the answer. And I love this topic and have read, I hope, widely on this topic. And I don't know anyone else who can answer that exact question either. I do know large books written on election that try to unravel some of those difficulties. Sometimes I read them and think, I think this guy's get it. I think he's close. He's got it. I have yet to find a a way to explain precisely how do we balance I'm doing it 
But it's actually 100% the Spirit. I see some eyes that need a cross-reference. Go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. If you're crucified, then are you alive or dead? Nevertheless, I live. If you're living, are you alive or dead? Yet, it's not me. Wait, are you living? No, it's not me. Who's living in me? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 2.20, am I alive or dead? In Galatians 2.20, am I living or is someone else living for me? This is not what some facile commentators would say is a contradiction. This is what we call complexity. There is a sense in which I am actively living and laboring to follow Christ and obey. And there is a sense in which Christ is doing all the good things in me. The inability of a man to explain all the mysteries of God does not mean that those mysteries contradict. It simply means there's a trinity and not a quartet. There are great mysteries beyond me. And if I could explain every aspect of God, I'd be Muslim. There are mysteries beyond me, and I'm happy with that. I am glad that I can reach out and look into the boundless ocean of an infinite God, and I can't come down to the bottom of it. I can't even come down to the bottom of it, how he saves me. But I adore. Yes, ma'am. Hmm. Yes. 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 And there's no command in the Bible to explain all the mysteries of religion. In fact, there's a command not to. Deuteronomy 29, 29. But there is a command to obey what we can understand. And there's no contradiction in mystery. There is a contradiction if we say um, God is a sinner and God is not a sinner at the same time in the same sense. That would be a contradiction. This is not a contradiction. This would be beyond. Let's keep studying it. But mystery is not by itself a contradiction. And some people who are angry at the Bible and not submissive to Christ will pull up things like this and say, see, there's a contradiction. And I would say, are you an infinite mind? If you are not an infinite mind, if you're just, you have a beginning and you have an end, then how could you think that you would be able to explain all that an infinite mind can do? This is one of those wonderful mysteries where Frederick Faber says, reason waits while love adores. These fruits are the inevitable result of the Holy Spirit's presence. That's point number five if you're following. They are the inevitable. That means they must come. They always come. 
Notice that there's two categories, works of the flesh, works of the spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit, and that leads me to the main point of the sermon tonight. Take your Bibles and go back to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. This is the parable of the four soils. In Matthew 13, he gives four soils in verses 3 to 9. The first soil, the seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured it. The second soil in verse 5, Matthew 13, verse 5. Some seed fell in the stony places. They sprung up because they had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7 is the third soil. Some seed fell on the thorns. The thorns sprung up and choked them. Verse 8 is the final soil, the fourth soil. Tell me what the difference is between this seed and the other three. Verse 8. Other seed fell into good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, the difference, you saw it already, is the word fruit. This parable is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in every one of those accounts, it mentions fruit. All true believers are distinguished from all professing believers because they have that word. They have a harvest when no one else does. What is the fruit? Go with me to the book of John, chapter 15. John 15. John doesn't have parables like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it has some illustrations. Um, you could call these a parable. D.A. Carson says there are no parables in John because a parable has a plot. John only has illustrations. I'm not sure if he's right. You can tell me if you think he is. I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether they call it a parable or not. But anyways, regardless of whether it's a parable or an illustration, it's truth. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the vine, the true vine. And my father is what? The vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me who does not bear what? Fruit. He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it can bring more fruit. This is just a side point. I don't know if we'll get back to this. God intentionally brings pain into your life so that you will show more fruit. He's the one who cuts, and cutting doesn't feel good. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, the same brings what? Much fruit. Without me, you can do how much? So then again, you have the tension. Is he doing it or are you? Verse 6. If a man abides in me, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. Men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That's, of course, a metaphor for eternal punishment. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified... That you go to church in nice clothes. By this my father is glorified that you give a lot in the offering. That you bear fruit. And by this 
You will be my disciples. In what way will you be his disciples? By bearing this fruit. Now I ask you, what is that fruit? Wait a minute. John 15. Where did we mention in this sermon already John 15? This is one of the passages that mentions the Holy Spirit. Just a few verses earlier, in John chapter 14, verse 26, he refers to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, he's going to mention the Holy Spirit again in verse 26. Chapter 14, verse 26, the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verse 26, the Holy Spirit. And between those two references of the Holy Spirit, we have the illustration, or the parable, of the vine and the branches. And in that illustration, what do we have? Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and the life that creates the fruit is the Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking perfectly in agreement with this in Galatians 5 when he says the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that is talked about in the parable of the sower is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that is talked about in John 15 is the fruit of the Spirit. And there is no one who can call themselves a Christian who does not have that fruit. That's the whole point of the sermon. That's the introduction to the text. That's how I hope I'm putting salt on your tongue to come back next week to get a nice cool drink. This is how I'm hoping that you will say, I've got it. I've got to get more of this. Because if you're a believer, you will have the fruit. And if you're the believer, you desire a greater harvest. Years ago, I taught on John 15. And a man, this is before I was married, a man came up and said, what is the fruit? And I said, Leading people to Christ. And I was wrong. I was wrong because at that time, about the only concept I had of the Christian life was evangelism. I had gone through my Bible before I had this one and marked every verse that refers to evangelism. Some verses that didn't refer to evangelism, I marked down as if they had. There's enough verses in the Bible that refer to evangelism. You don't need to grab ones that don't. This passage, John 15, refers to the fruit of the Spirit. It demonstrates the main work of the Holy Spirit, which is to change our hearts, our desires, our souls and spirits. If you are a believer, then you have these fruits showing. Have you ever taken time to ponder virtues like this. Love, joy, and peace. Could you even define some of them? Like like this one. Patience, kindness, goodness. Can you tell me what goodness is? Keep coming. I'll give you a definition. Or go on. Faith. Some of your Bible says faithfulness. Faithfulness means you're going to persevere. Faith means you're going to hold on to Christ. Which one is it? Keep coming, I'll tell you. The point is, 
All believers have these fruits because the Holy Spirit began his work in you by the new birth. That's the first work of the Spirit of God. It's called in the Gospels the new birth or calling or drawing. It's called in the epistles over and over, the epistles of Paul. It's called calling, 1 Corinthians 1, Romans chapter 8. Calling and being born again are the same thing. When the Holy Spirit called me, he put into my heart new desires. And the best illustration of this that I can think of might be the difference between a boy of Cameron's age and a man of Dakato's age. When Cameron sees a young lady, he doesn't think much. But when a young man who's older sees a young lady, he has different desires. What changed? Desires in his heart. The new birth is that gift of new desires. Why am I mentioning that now? Because in this way, the work of the Holy Spirit before conversion and after conversion is the same in this. It is a creation, a constant changing of new desires, a constant addition of desires. It's a constant adaptation, or as Francis just mentioned, it's slowly becoming less of me and more of Christ, where my desires are adapting so that I love holiness. And that is the message tonight. The Holy Spirit's great work is to change our desires. And that is why Jesus Christ said in John 16, verse 7, one of the most shocking things he ever said. John 16, verse 7. It is better for you that I go away. Because if I do not go, the comforter will not come. Would it be better for you right now if Jesus were here sitting with you? Jesus says, it's better that I go so you can have the Holy Spirit. The way things are right now for you is better than it was for Peter when Jesus walked beside him. Have you ever thanked God for that? So as we study these marks of the fruit of the Spirit, I want us to see what they are so that we will become more spiritual, more holy, more godly, more Christian, have greater assurance of our salvation, and greater comfort and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for hope and health and life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. What a gift. Thank you for putting him in our hearts. Show those who are here with no marks of these fruits. Show them tonight that they need to come to Christ and bow and be connected with the vine. I pray that you would work faith and joy and love in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.